Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. And ah, taking a deep breath because we've got a lot to cover today. Today's guest is Dr. Christopher Emden, who is the author of the new book, STEM STEAM, Make Dream, Reimagining the Culture of Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. And this is not Dr. Emden's first book. He has also written Ratchetemic, Reimagining Academic Success, and plenty of other titles. So we're getting into a few of the books, but of course, this is the newest one. This is the baby. So we've got to dive into how we can make STEM and STEAM subjects more popular among kids, more engaging, more entertaining, more valuable to them, because they need to embrace it at an early age to really have an interest for it. And if you're not inspired by the end of this conversation, again, I don't know what to tell you, because... Chris Emden is a super enthusiastic, passionate, engaging guy. Loved chatting with him. We talked about quite quite a bit. It's a little USC talk for any any fellow Trojans out there. I did not graduate from USC, but my sister did, so almost by association there. There's lots of good stuff. We're also talking about the importance of a nice-looking cover when you're writing a book. So if you're in the middle of writing a book, you'll want to listen to what Chris has to say. This is actually probably the best description of what a cover, like how you should embrace designing a cover uh, from anyone that I've, I've talked to. I really like the way he put it. And I'm not going to spoil it because then you wouldn't listen to the rest of the episode. And that's what a podcast is all about. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast. You can also support the show. Heading over to goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Pick up a copy of my book. You can visit the shop. Get yourself a nice cozy hoodie. It's very cold in Austin as I record this, although it might be a little warmer by the time we're all listening to it. But hey, you still want to be cozy as you're cuddled up and listening to this fantastic conversation with Chris. For people who aren't familiar with you, can you give us your name and your elevator pitch? Can you also tell us the type of elevator we're riding on? Ha, good question. My name is Christopher Emden. I am currently a professor of education at the University of Southern California. I'm the Robert A. Maslin Endowed Chair. I am an educator and I'm also a hip hop head. Um, I'm a sociologist and a psychologist and a teacher. I am a mixture of all complex things um, with a passion for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I brought all those things together into this book called STEM Scene Make Dream that I'm hoping we'll talk about today, but we can talk generally just about my work and um, you know my life and my mission in the world, which is to make education more equitable and to make science, tech, engineering, and mathematics more democratic. Fantastic. We're definitely going to talk about the book, but first I got to say, because my sister also went to USC, so I got to say fight on. It, you cannot not say it. Fight on indeed. <laughs> I, I have a couple of USC shirts and I'll Sometimes I'll forget I'm wearing them and I'll, you know, I'll go out to like the grocery store or something. And I remember I was at uh, some sporting event like down here in, in Texas and had my USC basketball shirt on. And I was walking back up to my seat like from the the main concourse and uh, a guy just like stuck out his, his two fingers at me, but didn't say anything. <laughs> and I was, very, <laughs> I was very confused for a while. Then it, he kind of like glanced down at my shirt. I was like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, fight up, fight up. <laughs> Dude, it's new for me, too. So previously, I was a professor at Teachers College at Columbia University, and my appointment at USC just started uh, a couple weeks ago, and already I've gotten the fight-ons <laughs> yelled at me, and so I'm getting acclimated to it as well. 
It's an adjustment for sure, for sure. It, it is. <laughs> now, you mentioned the new book, STEM, STEAM, Make Dream, Reimagining the Culture of Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, which, first of all, I love the name. I, th- I think that's fantastic. And I, I love the subject matter of it, too, because I do think these are, I mean, I'm not the only one. A lot of people think these are important, but they're not always the most appreciated subjects by uh, kids in school. And a lot of times it's not through any fault of their own. It's more just like the the way they're presented can sometimes be super dry and boring and things like that. So why is now the right time for this book? I mean, we live in a world right now where we need a scientifically literate populace. Folks are making awful decisions um, related to climate change. People are so fearful of basic science and making poor decisions because they don't trust science. Uh, The general population is not critical or thoughtful or reflective doesn't really engage in research, does not believe in experiments. And I feel like it's a function of the fact that a wide swath of our population just doesn't engage in science or math. They've been told from early on that it's only for the best and the brightest. And those best and brightest folks are only folks who can memorize. And the rest of the population who have the potential to engage in these disciplines really need it. So we're just in this moment in the world where we need a population who can engage in science, who's scientifically literate, And then also we have like millions of jobs across this country that go unfilled every year because we don't create enough young people who are successful in these disciplines. So something's got to give. And I just want to contribute to that conversation and saying what has to give is how we present these topics, um, how we introduce them to young people, how teachers teach, how parents talk to their kids about it, how like older brothers talk to their, 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 their siblings about it. But our relationship to STEM just has to change in order for us to be able to, you know, change the tide because it's going in the wrong direction. What did you learn while you were putting this book together? Oh, my gosh, so much. So, like, (laughs) I interviewed, like, all my heroes. So, Joaquin Frank, who was a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Ron Eglash, who's an ethnomathematician. Like, I I interviewed all these super cool people. And I realized that many of these amazing science people or math people were not that when they were in school. They kind of stumbled into it later on. And the reason why they are so great in STEM right now is because they were able to utilize their creativity and their innovation and their imagination that they did not get a chance to use when they were in school, in science, once they got to grad school. And, you know, my whole thing is always like, wow, look at these geniuses who kind of stumbled into this later on in life. But for most people, once they're turned off, they never get a chance to just discover it again in graduate school or, you know, stumble into it while they're doing research. And for me, it's like, how are we intentional about allowing the majority of the population to be able to find the passion for the discipline early enough where you don't have to wait till you stumble into grad school to get there? And that in many ways is my story. You know, I I didn't like STEM. All through middle school or high school, I got to undergrad and got lucky that I was sort of volunteering in a science lab studying the etiology of schizophrenia. And when I got into the lab, it was so amazing. It was so fun. I actually had to do things. And I was like, why did they show me this part when I was in school? (laughs) And so like my life's work is to show all the kids, all the cool parts as early as possible. And is, I assume that's a, a big component of making this more accessible, so to give them that early exposure to it, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I, I wrote the book and, I, you know, I've written previous books. You know, I just wrote another book, Ratchetemic, Reimagining Academic Success. And that book is about, like, being ratchet and academic, you know, like, <laughs> you know, being a little loud, abrasive and, 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 and you know, 
and, and verbose like I am and still being like an intellect. And this book is like the part two of that book. And I wanted to make it readable. Like the book has like cool pictures and a, you know, a nice shiny cover and a page with just a cool quote. And um, it, it, it was important to make the book a metaphor for how I think, think science and tech and math should be taught. And so I used the book as a metaphor for how we teach and I made it accessible. I made it reasonable, uh, readable. I made it interesting. I made it cute. At least I think it's cute. And, and I wanted that to be the message I gave the world that I can talk about STEM and have an accessible book. And it didn't have to be jargonistic, filled with citations that would turn people off, but rather something inviting like these disciplines should be. Can we get a, a scoop? Not obviously don't give away the whole the whole uh, book because we still want people to read it. But for, <laughs> for someone that, that like, let's say, you know, I hate, like, I'm okay with math, but I hate engineering. I hate technology. I hate science. Like what, what can I expect to, to kind of turn my viewpoint around? You know, I, I turn, I, the book is written in these four, four, four sections. So the first one is the STEM. I talk about the history of STEM, how it came to be, um, the fact that like these disciplines are just brought together arbitrarily, even though they're framed as though they are like the cousins of the intellectual, <laughs> you know, it's like, nah, they just, people just randomly put them together. Um, I, I tell a little bit about my story, which I think is interesting. You know, the kid from the Bronx in New York City who never was supposed to get a college degree, let alone become a scientist or an educator and how I, how I found myself in STEM and in education. Then I write about STEAM, like the need to incorporate the arts, but not just art, art and culture. And I talk about how to do that. Um, I talk about make, like maker culture and making and doing and creating and being inventive. And I talk about the most important thing ever in STEM, which is the, this act of radical dreaming and activating the radical imagination. And um, I give examples of how to do all those things. I give stories and quotes. And it's just a, look, it's just a cool book, man. Um, and I, I hope people dig it and, you know, it, it, and pass it along also, like pass it to your teachers in your life and pass it to parents in your life. Because I think there's something in it for everyone. And you had mentioned that you you gave it a nice shiny cover as well, uh, which I I agree. I think the the cover of really of all your books I think are really eye catching, and that's something I'm, I'm just realizing this now. I've asked this question to other authors before around cover design, but I for an audio only podcast, perhaps this is a, a dumb question, but I think it's a, a fun creative way to to see how well you can kind of describe things while. Uh, you know, talking about a, a very visual looking thing. But again, like people, you know, if they're they're passing a book in a bookstore, they're lo- scrolling through online, like it's probably going to be next to other books. And so that cover really does have to stand out. And I think your your book covers are certainly different between each other. But I think there there's like a couple of, of sort of similarities in that they're eye catching. And you like you're able to like, I don't even know if I have a word for it. It's like an intangibility type of thing of like, no, it's a real thing, man. It's a real thing. (laughs) It was intentional and deliberate. Um, you know, your, your book covers like your outfit. You know what I mean? Um, I'm a firm believer in aesthetics. Um, I'm a, I'm a style and, um, not, not really a fashion guy, but like, you know, there's, there's a way that I present myself in the world. I love cool fedoras and, uh, and, you know, old wristwatches and, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a particular aesthetic um, that I have, and I want my books to also be the same way. It's like, you know, it, it has to represent the ideas in a book. It has to, the book cover has to represent the imagination of the author. Um, it has to have some color, some style, some pizzazz. It's got to make you want to read it. 
And for me, I think about my book covers as like, you know, it's really cool person that you would not know they were cool if they didn't attract you to them. Um, so the covers are like a really cool outfit, man. And I'm glad you noticed that the, 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 my, the covers in my books are distinct from each other, but they all have like color. Um, they all have like really interesting font. And I think that the covers are interesting because what I've spent the time to write in a book is interesting. And I want whoever passes by to cap, like this guy really thought about this. Um, and, and I want to convey that sentiment and that emotion. Um, so yeah, like, you know, you, you dress well, um, and you, and you dress your books well as well. <laughs> <laughs> I need to commend you on, uh, rocking fedoras as well. I think I have looked, this is actually a, it's going to be a huge, huge tangent, but when the very first weekend I moved to Austin, I went out, I, I had met like a friend of a friend. Um, and she's like, Oh, I know like so many people in this town. So like, let's just go. We'll go to a couple places I know and like see, you know, see who's there. And at some point a fedora like just circulated and she like gifted it to me. She's like, here, you can have this. And it's the only time I've seen myself in a fedora and been like, that's not bad. Like that's, that's looking all right. And I thought it was just for the night. So I like left it. I was staying at a hotel while I was finding a place to live. And I left it at the front desk for her to, to come get uh, and then I like a year later she had moved and I asked like did you ever get that fedora and she said no and I said dang I could have kept it. You sure? You know here's the thing about the fedora right like a fedora wearer could either be like this guy's like too much stay away from him he's like ridiculous or it could be the cool guy right and, and, you know so so you're either one side of the spectrum or the other I try to be on the side where I wear my fedora because I have interesting things to say. Um, so you, you, you want to be on the side of like, this guy's interesting. Not like this guy's like off, um, but, but <laughs> unless you want to be I, alone I think, and then you can be off. <laughs> yeah. You know, but yeah, fedoras matter, man. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Now you've also, because, because writing several books, not enough teaching, not enough. You've also created, uh, what started as a Twitter chat, hip hop ed, and has since become an entire nonprofit and brand. So, for people who, who maybe haven't heard of Hip Hop Ed, what's it all about? You know, Hip Hop Ed is, uh, it's a movement to, to have the world exist at the intersections of hip hop and education. It's uh, a movement to bring hip hop into schools and see what's educative about hip hop culture without dismissing it uh, by, you know, some random thing some rapper said. Um, and like you said, it began with a Twitter chat. I was tweeting into the, you know, into the, black hole with this hashtag of hip hop ed because i believe in bringing hip hop and education together and before long people were just tweeting along with me every week and since then it's gone like uh it's been a worldwide trending topic at least three times and i get rappers and young people and scientists and like the most random connection of people together and they, they convene on twitter every tuesday night um at 9 p.m., a tweet about some topic I put out, I put out about hip-hop and education. And for the last couple of weeks, I've been one of an inaugural Twitter Spaces hosts. And so at 8.15 p.m. every Tuesday, I host a Twitter Spaces conversation on the intersections of hip-hop and education. And now it's a nonprofit organization um, that supports schools, trains teachers, convenes on Twitter, and, you know, and houses this other thing I've worked on called Science Genius which is a science rap battle competition. But yeah, it all began randomly online about 
10 or 11 years ago. That's the best things do, just random, <laughs> randomly online and then lead to greatness. Have you, the Twitter space is obviously still very new. Uh, have you found that, that that conversation is even like more enjoyable with like in an audio format? Oh man, I am in love with Twitter spaces. I, I you know, I used to do IG live conversations and, you know, on IG live, you're almost like talking to an audience and, or, you know, almost feels kind of preachy. And on Twitter spaces, you have a community that's already generated, um, you know, at least for the hip hop ad, we already gen- generated a community that would get online and tweet with us. And now we get to hear their voices and bring folks up to the stage. And it's so much more democratic. And then you could concurrently tweet. It's just a multimodal experience where you get to engage with a community through words uh, that are said and words that are typed. It's just an amazing, amazing set of conversations. And I'm super humbled to have been selected by Twitter to be one of their inaugural hosts. And then you're making people's day, too. When you bring them up on stage, they're like, oh. Like I get a platform now, and that's that's awesome. Like I love the the sense of community for it. I do have to ask: Were you on Clubhouse as well? I was on Clubhouse for a little bit. Um, it was cool. Um, you know, I, <laughs> there was something about like the the full exclusivity in the rollout that just was not my favorite. Um, but I was on there for a bit. But I find Twitter Spaces a lot more demo, uh, democratic. I mean, like we had a Twitter Space conversation yesterday, and we had these two high school students from. Kansas City, who decided to hop on a conversation and like school a room of adults on what young folks need to make school more enjoyable. I mean, that just doesn't happen anywhere else. That is fantastic. I, I ask because I agree with you. I think the I, clubhouse. I, I always felt with with most clubhouse, there were there were some rooms that were fine. I but yeah, I agree. The exclusivity added to I think the attitude of a lot of the people on there and I always kind of felt like I was just watching a group of friends that already knew each other congratulate each other on like achievements I uh, which is fine but I don't want an award show I you know I'd prefer to have a conversation I, I've found in Twitter spaces that that usually happens it's like you're saying it's way more democratic you've got people that are like actually interested in what you have to say instead of just like, give me my moment to shine and then I'm out. Like it's, it's very nice that there's a better version of clubhouse basically. Yeah, man. I mean, no shade to clubhouse. I think it serves its purpose for audiences who like that kind of conversation. I, I just, you know, personally find sort of spaces so much more democratic and you described it, right? Like it's not like this, like old boys club or like old friends gathering you know, to, you know, to sort of like take command over a stage as the audience watches them spit <laughs> their brilliance. You know, it's like, it's like, yo, you know, we, we, we believe in this thing. We come up, we talk, we learn from each other, we grow from each other and we make new friends. You know, like what better way to be than that? You said 8.15 for, for future. Yeah. 8.15 PM every Tuesday. You are welcome to join. Um, You'll love it. It ranges from like the deeply like, like, you know, political to like did you hear that album how could you possibly bring that into a classroom um <laughs> and, and i thought the range of the conversation is always also really cool we've been talking a lot about the uh the early kind of exposure for it and is that i mean obviously we, we need stem earlier in schools and and presented in more accessible and, and and entertaining ways really too but from a parent's perspective in particular what can they be doing to to help kind of generate this interest? Uh, that's a great question. I think there are a number of things that parents can do. The first is just like, don't ever say to your child or around your child 
I'm not a math person. I'm not a science person. I think societally we've gotten so comfortable with just saying I'm not that. And young folks inherit that. And so they, the first time they struggle in school, or the first time it's a little bit difficult. They're like, well, I'm just not a math person. I'm just not a science person. And they have an entire identity constructed around what they can't do. When in reality, you've not spent enough time with us to know whether or not you're good at it. So the first thing is like being very intentional about what you say around children, about your relationship to STEM subjects. Uh, the second thing is affirmation, affirmation, affirmation. It's not just how you present it, but it's also being able to make connections between what young folks intrinsically do and connecting that back to science. Like my work around hip hop ed is just like looking at the deep scientific knowledge expressed by a rapper. They put out hypotheses, they test them, they revise. I mean, that, that's, that's part of the scientific process. And in the book, I write about like this concept of science-mindedness. Like you don't have to be a scientist to be science-minded. You have to be curious, reflective, anti-authoritarian, um, you know, and these are skill sets that most young folks already have. And so it's about identifying the skills they have and connecting them back to those disciplines. So that's like a, you know, a third thing. You know, the fourth is like introduce them to science and math heroes. Um, I, I interviewed this guy named Jeff Henderson, who used to work at Nike and design sneakers. He did some early Yeezys. He's now started his own sneaker company. And he's an engineer and designer who spends his life making cool sneakers. Young folks don't even know jobs like that exist. And they don't know that you have to be able to be into science and math to have that kind of a cool job. And there are tons of folks like that that exist in the world. But if you tell a young person, like, name a scientist you know, you know, they're like Albert Einstein, the guy with the crazy hair. Like that's <laughs> so far from the reality. And so it's so introducing some more contemporary science heroes that young folks can find relatable. Um, last thing I'll say, because I don't want to give the whole book away, uh, <laughs> but all the ideas are in the book and explored in more detail. It's like you don't know the power of getting on email, finding a guy that's doing cool science stuff and sending him an email and saying, hey, you know, I am a parent. And I like your work and it's cool. You know, would you mind having a five minute Zoom conversation with my kid about what you're doing? Those folks are sitting in a lab somewhere writing papers that are only being read and cited by the same five people for their entire lives. And they're looking to connect. They want to have people be fans of their work. And so when you reach out to them, they more often than not will respond. I think that's a good rule for life too. Like just reach out to people. In, in the fields that you're interested in? It's, it's certainly so. I've had so many amazing things emerge out of just saying, you know what, let me try. Um, I had a graduate student a couple years back. I was teaching about Kendrick Lamar's album to Pimp a Butterfly in class. And I said, write some lesson plans around, you know, Kendrick's album and what you're teaching in class and poetry and um, reach out to him. And guess what happened? Somebody from Top Dog Entertainment reached out to him. And three weeks later, Kendrick Lamar and I and him were in a school in New Jersey talking about his album <laughs> in front of a room full of teenagers. It was just a phone call. It's a, you know, and, and so many opportunities that I've had in life have been a function of just saying, I wonder if this person would be interested. Let me reach out to them. And so you're right. It's a rule for thumb for life. If you believe in something, you're passionate about it, and you feel like somebody else could benefit from it, it's not always like, let me see who I can be friends with in high places. But it's like, man, that person could actually like, that person would think this was cool. You know, I'd love to have a conversation with that person so I can learn from them. Um, reach out and amazing things happen. Yeah, and they they can sniff that too. Like if they're oh, if yeah. you're just trying to, to use them, they're gonna be like, no, get out of here. 
Authenticity is currency, my friend. Oh, I might name the episode that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we, we've been in the midst of a pandemic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if everyone's seen, you know, everyone that's listening, perhaps you've noticed here or there. Uh, and we're, we'll be coming up on, you know, two years uh, of this. And in some cases, that's two years of at-home education with very little, if any, you know, return to a classroom type of setting. So kind of a two-part question here, but what has COVID taught us about education and how can we be better moving forward? I love that question. The first thing I always say to people when they ask me about COVID is, you know, it was not the best thing for young people. Agreed. However, there were some things that we learned about how education happens during COVID that can help us be better. Also, some young folks had the best educational experiences of their lives during COVID. I think adults like to frame it all as like, it was awful. It was all doom and gloom. All the kids hated it. Nope. Some of them liked it. And so I've been asking kids like, what worked well for you, you know, during COVID, during online learning? Kids love the fact that they could pick their own schedule. They love the fact that they could pick their own backgrounds. You know, they love the fact that the homework was all online right away and they could research and then do the work. So they, they are things that, that, that we can glean from that experience that we can bring back into classroom post-pandemic. Um, I've worked with Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts over the course of the last year in designing what I call the Collider Classroom or the post-pandemic classroom. And the idea is to realize that post-pandemic, we're still going to need to glean some wisdom from online learning and that the best physical spaces for learning are going to have to be hybrid spaces where young folks have access to digital resources or where there's a wall in the classroom where they can sort of access the web. Um, And and this post-pandemic classroom that we designed at Lincoln Center, we, we paid attention to a lot of really intimate details based on conversations with young people. So we have really curated lighting. Um, we've realized that if you, the lighting in the classroom has to reflect the moods of young folks and that if you change the lighting in certain ways, you can actually generate the, like, you can almost like invoke a certain emotion in young people with certain lighting. So we, we have unique lighting. We have a green space in the classroom. Young folks love to be able to gather and sit and chill and lounge. They don't need to be sitting in groups of four or in straight rows anymore. And so we have to sort of like really um, uh, different options for seating arrangements. It's attached to a concept of teaching as a performance art. So we're training teachers to be able to perform more when they teach um, on this platform and stage. We have um, hidden hidden spaces for young folks to be able to keep their books and their materials. So there, there's actually a concept of a post-pandemic classroom, the Collider classroom, um, that I've been dreaming up And I think it's based on the recognition that all online learning isn't bad. All the learning during COVID was not problematic. There's some aspects that we can certainly improve upon, but the best classrooms going forward are going to be equal parts, the traditional classroom where young folks are in physical spaces and also a digital sort of online kind of platforms. Like we need to embrace the concept of the hybrid classroom. Sounds sounds very uh, similar embracing a, a hybrid work concept and uh, that it's like, hey, if we if we take the uh, best elements of each of these and put them in a way that gets people energized and engaged, like what look at what we can achieve. It's it's 
amazing the parallels like as we were going through that i was like that's like that makes so much sense man you're so spot on and here's the thing too like some of the most successful companies in the world had already figured this out um you know you, you go to google offices man you know folks have access to food right away they have flexible seating arrangements they're able to sort of work their own schedule the google campus looks like the ideal school if you ask me and so they've already figured out that if their employees are comfortable, they have their basic needs met, and you trust them to be able to get their work done and still have a good time and still feel whole and full and welcome, you will have more productivity. But in schools, we have this antiquated notion that rigor has to look like rigor mortis. And we have to move past that. And I think the pandemic has sped up our realization that the old model isn't working. And the next model has to look more like a little bit of both. Love it. I love it. All right, Christopher, you're almost off the hook here, but we've got our top three. And I'm going to let you choose because obviously you're very well-versed in hip-hop. You mentioned a, an intimate conversation with Kendrick Lamar earlier. So you can you can choose your own ending here. Either your top three hip-hop artists or your top three hip-hop lyrics. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's a tough, tough question. I think I'll go with artists and I may share some lyrics. You know me, I'm the Ratchademic guy, right? You know, when you write a book called Ratchademic, you don't (laughs) pick sides. You just do both. (laughs) Um, So favorite artists of all time. You know, I love Nas, man. Nas is my guy. He's one of my favorite MCs. Um, I I spent a little time at the Hip Hop Archive at Harvard when they announced the Nasir Jones Fellowship at Harvard University. And not only is he a brilliant MC, he's just an intelligent man. And the fact that he's the only rapper with a fellowship at Harvard, um, I have to say Nas. And Nas's like first single was It Ain't Hard to Tell. And I just, I just, I just love that song. I, I like the the way it, he opens it up, just affirming himself. It ain't hard to tell. I excel and prevail. The mic is contacted. I get trapped clientele. My mic check is life or death. Breathing the cypher's breath. I, like that, that like I am here, hip hop world and world. Um, I excel, I prevail. Like I just love the notion of affirmation as your introduction to the world. So Nas and the opening lyrics said, ain't hard to tell. Um, I'm an East Coast cat. So I definitely have to say um, Biggie. Um, I, I, there's this sort of, magical simplicity in Biggie lyrics when you hear it the first time and then you listen to it the second and third time and you're like, oh my gosh, that was a double entendre. Oh my gosh, that was an internal rhyme scheme. Like you can nerd out over Biggie lyrics and when you hear them for the first time, they're like, they seem very simple. So I, I definitely have to say big. Um, you know, I'm trying to think about what big lyric, not coming to me right now, but he's my guy. Um, and third, sheesh. I'm going to go contemporary on a third. Um, oh my gosh, how could I not say Jizza? I, I definitely have to say Jizza. Also, I have to say Jizza from Wu-Tang Clan. Definitely. Uh, Jizza's my guy. He's uh, my partner in the Science Genius Project. And, you know, he, he's come with me to New York City Public Schools just to challenge kids to write science rap. So I will say Jizza for sure. And, you know, cats are so stingy. They got short arms and deep pockets. Like, that idea, like, <laughs> so stingy, you have short arms and deep pockets. Um, how do you not love the genius Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan? So that, that's my top three. 
I love. Who were you gonna go with with uh, contemporary? I was gonna go contemporary, and I was gonna go with Jay Electronica. Ooh. Um, I just I just think he's absolutely brilliant, and you know, folks didn't love his last album, um, because there was a lot of Jay Z on it. I think the more you can sprinkle Jay Z on anything, the better it gets. But <laughs> uh, Jay Electronica is just the he's just a brilliant wordsmith. I need to go listen to all of them right now. <laughs> You, do I, it. Do my, it. My only, I, I think my only story that I can contribute is I saw Nas when I was in college at Miami, and I it was it was a fantastic show. But his, uh, it was Goody Mob as the the opener. I uh, so seeing seeing CeeLo in yes. in the flesh. That is a short man. He is <laughs> he is very like tiny. I did not realize there was a. I don't, I don't even remember who was emceeing. I think it was just like a local, um, you know, someone that worked at the the venue or something. And he he came out and he's like, "All right, like everyone ready for Nas? Like we're all, you know, we're all going nuts." And then he's like, "All right, he's gonna be out in a few minutes." And then it was like thirty <laughs> minutes later, and I was just like, "Man, what are you? Your hyping is not good." <laughs> but, but then he came out and and it was just fantastic. So I was like, "All right, all right, I'll forgive." That's a heck of a show, man. Goody Mod and Nas. Dude, I know. A heck of a show. Yeah. And I, I believe those were free tickets because I worked at the radio what? station and someone, one of the other DJs there. And I actually felt pretty bad because he, he was able to like, he like put me in touch with the person to, to get the free tickets. So I got one for me and a buddy. And then he also was trying to get tickets, but I guess hadn't confirmed it with the person. So they didn't have any for him. And I was, oh, like, no. I was like, do you want these tickets? Because like you, you said that he's like, no, 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 you enjoy it. <laughs> So slight tinge of guilt while watching, but then you kind of lose yourself. In the music, I'm sure so that he fine, wrote you know? it away really quickly as yeah. he sat there and enjoyed the show. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, maybe by like the fourth bar, I was like, okay, I'm all right. <laughs> well, Christopher, this has been fantastic. I I am like ready to run through a brick wall right now. So if people want to check out the book, they want to learn more about you. Where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Chris Emden. So that's C-H-R-I-S-E-M-D-I-N. Um, on Twitter or Instagram, hashtag HipHopEd, H-I-P-H-O-P-E-D. The book is Stem Steam Make Dream. And um, if you like my older book, Ratchetemic, Reimagining Academic Success, um, stay in touch. Love it. Fantastic. Thank you again for hopping on. And of course, we've got to end with a corny joke, as we always do. What do Beethoven and Lil John have in common? What do Beethoven and Lil John have in common? What? Um, no. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. <laughs> right today, people. You know what? I think That's you're the first one. person to ever to ever correctly get. <laughs> I like I cracked the code. I cracked the code. <laughs> Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you're a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 